0: when I was preparing my talk, which had the tentative title of the Charter's Code as a Sociological Instrument, I thought about the conference theme for a minute, and I was, I was leaning back, and I thought, well, how can we conceptualize the idea of curing through questioning? Um, and I came up with that very naive um, tripartite picture. So it looks like to every cure, there has to be some kind of illness, something that goes wrong that precedes the cure. And sometimes there are tools, um, instruments that help us initiate the healing process, that help us um, accelerate the healing process. In our case, that's supposed to be asking a question, that's supposed to be the process of questioning. And I want to have a look at this tripartite picture as we find it in the Buddhist tradition. And I will focus on the process of questioning. But um, before I do that, I want to start with giving an account of what uh, the Buddhists say the illness is and what the Buddhists say the cure is. And um, this is a reminder. I too want to, to start with the first noble truth. We know the first noble truth is that life is essentially suffering. Well, we might ask ourselves is that actually a plausible idea? It's rather drastic. I would say we can't even sit on a chair for longer than, what, two minutes without feeling pain in one of our body parts. So life is essentially suffering. We can't really escape it. It is ubiquitous. And we also find a story about the cause, or the the source of suffering in the Four Noble Truths. A plausible idea would be to say, the source of suffering is something external. Uh, Something terrible happens outside of us, and that has repercussions on our psyche. Um, Somehow suffering is just the epiphenomenon. Of something that happens outside of us. But that's not the story that the Buddhists gave us. Um, According to the Four Noble Truth, the source of suffering is inside of us. It is internal. And it is grounded in a conflict, so to say, between how we take the world to be, how we want the world to be, and how the world or reality really is. So the idea is that we have erroneous ideas about permanence, independence and self-existence, and they are erroneous because the world is defined as impermanent, interdependent, and lacking self-existence. So there's, there's a stark conflict between how we want the world to be, how we perceive the world, and what the world fundamentally is. And we know um, those erroneous ideas, they have repercussions on, on a personal level. So they cause depression, they cause anxiety, they cause sadness, they cause all kinds of psychological and physical distress, but they also have repercussions on an interpersonal level and how we treat nature or how we, what our relation with nature is. So we might take the idea that we are independent and self-existent entities as a first premise towards an argument for a whole host of asymmetric, alienating, exclusionary relations makes it easier to argue for exploitation, domination, discrimination, destruction. So basically, everything a social egalitarian would be against. And we know those relations are the whole, have the hallmark of suffering. They cause suffering. And now, what, the idea is, what is, what is the cure? How, would, how do we get rid of suffering? Well, the idea is simple, um, but probably not as simple as it sounds. Just get rid of those erroneous ideas. Just, lift the veils of ignorance, so to say, and and see things as they they really are. And that's supposed to be the mode of enlightenment. Well, this sounds easy, but how do we get there? We get there through questioning, asking questions. That's the idea. So today, I want to have a look at two questions as we find them in the Buddhist tradition. Ultimately, I want to argue that that there's just one question. They are uh, structurally similar. They They are the same. Um, first question is hypothetical, but what we're really interested in is, is the answer. So first question, is anything real? The answer that Nagarjuna in his Mula, Madhya, Makarika would have given us is, everything's real and is not real, both real and not real, neither real nor not real, and this is the Lord Buddha's teaching. Well, isn't that obscure? Isn't that mysterious? Isn't that If you're educated a lot, along broadly Aristotelian lines, as I think most of you are, you will see this is full of contradictions. This is the so-called chattus it's, it's an instance of the Chattus-Koti. I will say that the Chattus-Koti is a schema, a logical form, so to say, and this is just one instance of that. And I want to propose the following idea. We can understand what the Chattus-Koti is by getting a better hold on what this is. And we can understand what the, this is by getting a better hold on what the Chattus-Koti is. So the second question is, A monk asks, does a dog have Buddha nature? So this is our question. And a Zen teacher answers, moo. Well, that's even more mysterious, isn't it? Um, This is a koan. We've heard about koans already on on this conference. This is Joshua's dog, um, probably the most famous and also the most ridiculed koan. Here's my hypothesis. Shatis Koti and koan have the same function in Buddhist philosophy. Mariamaka and Zen Buddhism respectively, and they share a systematic structure. Both are considered to be a schema for upaya, which is a means towards the sociological end goal, which is enlightenment. So they're basically the schema for our medicine. Okay, So I have to skip about the next, I have to skip the next points because of time restrictions, but I just want to give you a, a short um, impression about. How controversial the, the Chattuskoti actually is. And so here's, here's a quote that, that I really like. So the doctrine, the Chattuskoti, but it also refers to the Madhya, Madhyamaka tradition as a whole. So the quote is The doctrine, the Chattuskoti, has been described as nihilism, monism, irrationalism, misology, agnosticism, skepticism, criticism, dialectic, mysticism, achismism, absolutism, relativism, nominalism. A lot of isms, and here's my favorite linguistic analysis with therapeutic value. Now, you might want to add um, interpretations that came after 1977, dialetheism, ontological non well foundedness, um, those interpretations with which I will work today. So, I would have talked about why I think um, a lot of the research has gone wrong in the Chattis but I will skip that. I will just um, continue with this. Um, so, don't be afraid. Won't go into the nitty-gritty details of the logic, and I'm not trying to do a lot of logic here. I just want to give you an impression um, about what the structure of the chaduscote is, and I think it's it's it can be best seen when we um, have a look at the at the logical form of the chaduscote. So we might want to put the chaduscote in a classical classical logical form, so frege Russ logic, the logic you are probably familiar with. We might want to say that the proposition that everything's is real is A. The proposition that everything is not real is not A. The proposition that everything's both real and not real is A and not A and the proposition that everything's neither real nor not real is not A and not A. So, what's the problem with that? 3 entails 1 and 2. Just get rid of the of the conjunction and you get 1 and 2. Four is equivalent to three by De Morgan's law. Take the negation to the brackets and you get three out of four. So what happens is the code collapses. There are just two positions left. So the classicist might say, there you go Nagarjuna. This is why your chartiscordie is so mysterious. This is why position three and four don't make sense. Well, we want to be charitable. We want to search for a different alternative. And the alternative I want to introduce is associated with Graham Priest. Um, he introduced it in a 2010 paper and recently in his book, which is dedicated to the Chattascotti, and his idea is, well, just move away from the realms of classical logic and let's move towards the realms of non-classical logic. So in non-classical logic, we can do the following thing. We can deny the law of the excluded middle, and we can ni- deny law of contradiction So we say that there are things that are in between the gap of truth and falsity and we say that there are things that are both true and false. Okay, so we expand our set of truth values, so to say, um, beyond just truth and falsity. Um, so what Graham does, he's saying there's a set of status predicates, um, so again I'm not going into the details of the logic, but what it's supposed to convey is that there's not only truth and falsity, There's there's also bothness and either-ness. And in the logic um, we are working with now, this is perfectly fine. The Chattis-Coti doesn't collapse. Okay. So, again, I don't want to go into the logic. Everything I want to take from this is the structure of the Chattis-Coti. So, we might want to express the Chattis-Coti as this this disjunctive form. We can also put it into a Hasse diagram. And we see the four corners of the Chattis-Coti right before our eyes. Okay. So far, so good. We know what the structure of the Chattaskoti is, but there's more to the Chattaskoti than that. In some of the earliest sutras, we find discussions between the Buddha and his disciples, and here's one such discussion. So the disciple Vaka asks, How is it, Gautama? Does Gautama hold that the sane exists after death, and that this view alone is true and every other is false? So he's basically asking, What happens to the person after enlightenment? And what the Buddha says is, Nay, Vaka, I do not hope that the saint exists after death and that this view alone is true and every other is false. Okay, so Vakka is curious. He goes on questioning. How is it, Buddha? Well, do you think that the saint does not exist after death? And the Buddha asks, no, that's not what I think. So you will probably realize those are the, four, the first two corners of the Chattas And of course, there's a third corner and there's a fourth corner. So Vaka goes on to ask, Hey Buddha, do you think that the saint both exists and does not exist after death? And again, the answer is no, that's not what I think. And finally, does Gautama hold that the saint neither exists nor does not exist? And the answer again is no, that's not what I think. So you will realize the Buddha is denying all the four possibilities of the Chattaskoti, all the four corners. We might just put a negation sign in front of the classical um, interpretation, but Again, this just collapses. So Graham's idea is the following. Why not just add a fifth value, none of the above? So neither one, nor two, nor three, nor four. And so the fifth value, Tadascordi, might just express it with um, this disjunctive form again. How does Graham motivate the fifth value? So the idea is the following. In Madhyamaka thought, we find a metaphysical distinction. The idea is that reality is twofold. There's a conventional side to reality and there's an ultimate side to reality. Conventional reality is reality as it appears to us, so reality with our conceptual impositions on it. Um, This is the reality in which we suffer, so to say. And there's ultimate reality. Ultimate reality is reality without our conceptual impositions on it. So that, that, that has a consequence. The consequence is if, if ultimate reality is reality without our conceptual impositions, then we cannot talk or think about it. So everything that goes on in ultimate reality is essentially ineffable. Okay, so we have a good grip on what the Chartas Cote is. Now the question remains, how do we get from conventional reality to ultimate reality? How do we get from the illness to the cure with questioning? So I propose we do the following thing. We leave the Indian subcontinent and we we take the journey that Buddhism took and we find ourselves um, on the Japanese archipelago and there we find the Jyugutsu, the ten ox-herding pictures. And I want to propose the following thing. We can read this little story, and I will, I will tell you the story in a second, along the lines of a Chattoskoti. So I propose we can do some philosophical archaeology and we can excavate the... Four corners of the Chattiskoti from that little story. So to do that, here are two preliminaries. The story is supposed to um, be about a boy and his journey to enlightenment. Second, um, the ox that you see here is one of those iconographies which has survived the journey of Buddhism from India to Japan. And usually we think about the ox as a metaphor um, for meditation practice or the uh, studying the scriptures or following the Buddhist path. Okay, so um, with that, let me just start to give you my interpretation of that story. So we start with that little boy here, he's somehow confused, he's out there in the wilderness. we can guess he's suffering, we're all suffering, so the boy is suffering as well. Let's just say that um, since he, his, his thinking is grounded in conventional um, thought and, uh, and conventional reality, he believes in the proposition that everything's true. Everything's real, I'm sorry. Um, so we get the first corner of the Chattus Koti. Now the story goes on, um, the boy is suffering, but he wants to get rid of the suffering. So he's searching for something. What he finds is the Buddha's path, the Buddha's practice. So he gets a first glimpse of the ox, he gets a first idea of what the Buddha's path is supposed to tell us. And there probably he reads something along the lines of, there's ultimate reality, everything's an illusion, but his thinking, because he's not yet advanced on his path towards enlightenment, is still grounded um, in conceptual dualities. So maybe he comes to think that the proposition that everything is real is false. So we get the second corner of the Chatuskoti. Then he goes on to wrestle with the, with, the, with the ox. He goes on to tame the ox and he goes on to ride the ox. So how can we think about that? So I want to say that At this point, he might have realized that there are two sides of of reality. There's conventional reality, there's ultimate reality, Um, but yet there's no enlightenment. Well, why is there no enlightenment? Because that in itself is a duality. He hasn't overcome dualistic thinking. So we get the third corner, which is both. Everything's both real and not real. Still no enlightenment, so what happened? Um, So here's the seventh picture. Um, The ox is gone. Uh, We don't need the Buddhist practice anymore. Maybe he's disillusionized. Uh, We don't know. He's just sitting there um, in that very tranquil surroundings. And maybe he thinks, well, I've tried everything. Maybe everything is neither real nor not real. Okay, so the boy has gone through the four corners of the Chattus And then we see the eighth picture, which is empty, which is blank. So what is it supposed to tell us? I just told you... Ultimate reality is ineffable, it's beyond our concepts, it's beyond um, conceptual thinking. So, this is what's supposed to be a metaphor for being beyond our conceptual thought. This is supposed to be emptiness or depict ultimate reality. So, this is, by the way, where the Hachi Gutsu ends, so the eight Oxfording pictures. But in some places, we find ten Oxfording pictures, so the Ju Gutsu. So, we get those two pictures here. Um, so you might have thought, with that story's over, boy's enlightenment, everything's fine, suffering's... Um, uh, he stopped to suffer. Um, but some the story goes on. So what, what do you think about those last two pictures here? And uh, here's the answer, or I think the answer is implicit in this Zen saying. It goes as follows. 30 years ago, before I practiced Chan, I saw that mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. However, after having achieved intimate knowledge and having gotten away, in, I saw that mountains are not mountains and rivers are not rivers. But now that I've found rest as before, I see mountains, are mountains and rivers are rivers. So the idea is that just having insight into, oops, where is it, ultimate reality is not enough to achieve enlightenment. You have to realize that there are two aspects of reality, a conventional one and an ultimate one. And so what what happens here is that the boy can return to conventional reality knowing that everything he sees is a conceptual imposition. And that's how to overcome um, suffering. So how does that connect with the Quran? I want to propose the following idea. The Quran is nothing else than abbreviated it links the illness to the cure. It's just that in the Quran, the fancy logical footwork is missing. It's somewhat tacit in the Quran, whereas in Shattus uh, Koti we spell it out. So to understand what I mean by that, um, we might just want to know what mu means. Mu means something like emptiness. So there might be two reasons for why the Zen teacher says mu. First reason, maybe he just wants to point at the fact that the monk should do his homework and read the Nirvana Sutra. Because in the Nirvana Sutra, the Buddha says, every sentient being has Buddha nature, so the dog has Buddha nature as well. So maybe it's just Zen master's just pointing at the fact that uh, the monk didn't do his homework. Well, that's a better interpretation. I think what the Zen teacher is pointing to is that the monk's thinking, the question is still grounded in conceptual dualism. It still presupposes that there's doghood, that there are dogs, that there's something like Buddha nature, it still presupposes that the question can be answered in a yes no dichotomy, that there's a yes or no answer to that. Think about what would happen if we put the Quran into the MMK, the Mula Mari Makarika, so the book where we find the Chattus Koti. In the, in, the, in the MMK, the Quran would read like some, something like that Does a dog have swabhava? Does a does dog have self existence? So, what Nagarjuna would do is run that question through the four corners of the Chattaskoti. What the Buddha would do is deny all of those four possibilities of the Chattaskoti. So, what does the Buddha establish? None of the above. I want to post that there is no difference between mu, emptiness, and the idea of none of the above. They just point at the same thing, they point at the same concept. Now we can go full circle, so to say. We can go back to the tripartite picture with which I've started. We find ourselves in conventional reality, we suffer in conventional reality, we want to get rid of the suffering. Questioning can help. We ask does the dog have Buddha nature? And we try to find an answer. And with the Chattascotti, we, we find the answer in a fancy logical machinery. We go through truth, falsity, bothness and neitherness. We don't do that in the Quran. But we connect the illness to the cure, which is seeing things as they really are, with the Quran and with the Koti. So I want to propose Koti and Quran, they are actually the same. Thank you.